Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to episode 11 of the Talking Sira podcast. In our last episode we spoke about the Qurayshi boycott of the Muslims and the tribe and family of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib. Um, prior to the boycott, um, the Muslims were in fact strengthened by the Islam of both uh, Hamza and Umar radiallahu anhum. And this was uh, pretty much a victory for the Muslims in that it allowed them to be a bit more open in their Islam and, and public and come out in the public and, and kind of express their Islam and have that protection uh, of both Omar and Hamza and the important point that we um, highlighted is was that it was actually due to this hostile uh, and harsh environment uh, that the Quraysh had um, kind of uh, made for the Muslims that both uh, the Islam of Omar and Hamza um, resulted in the fact in, resulted in their Islam um, with Omar, obviously, he was on his path to kill the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and this was because of that environment that the Quraysh had created. They, they wanted to; they were willing to pay money for someone to kill and end the end the life of the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But in fact, Allah Allah's plan was greater because Omar uh, became a Muslim through through, and we won't go through all of it, all of it again. But it was actually through this that he became a Muslim. Likewise, um, with um, with Hamza, the se- very similar happened where he um, got angry at uh, Abu Jahl and he attacked him um, because of what he had said to the Messenger وسلم, and just out of kind of emotion and anger he proclaimed that he was a Muslim when he wasn't really in his heart but he, he just said it out of anger and after a while it did enter his heart and Islam entered um, and he accepted his Islam uh, you know, and he informed the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So it really highlights that even in this environment of hostility, in kind of the the environment that even we may be facing today, um, whether it be in the West here in in France, for example, there's you know it's a very hostile environment at the moment uh, with all that is going on there, and in the Muslim world, obviously, it's it's probably far worse than what we face here, and it really just shows that there are. You know some minor kind of uh, bl- blessings that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala sends, where you know many Muslim, many people are becoming Muslim when they see the attack on Islam and the fa- uh, you know the fact that Islam is all over the media and the, there is this massive animosity and aggression towards Islam. Uh, it opens the hearts and minds of people, and this was what happened uh, back then with the Quraysh. So we can obviously it is very difficult uh, times that we're facing but but we shouldn't always feel too disheartened because this is the test that we have from Allah and there are sometimes some blessings in uh, the harsh as as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says inna ma'al usri yusra with difficulty comes ease so the other thing we also spoke about is that the muslims remained strong on their their, their deen and they remained defiant against the Quraysh. um and even though they were being tortured and persecuted and mocked, they remained strong. So the Quraysh um, realized that their activities weren't really having an impact. And they had to come together and think about what way, what could in fact destroy uh, the message of Islam and uh, you know, destroy the Muslims really and the Messenger wasallam. And this is where the idea of the boycott came. They came together and thought about really long and hard and strategized to think about what would stop Islam. Uh, and they came up with the idea of a boycott. And this boycott wasn't just a kind of off-the-cuff idea. It was very comprehensive, very robust and well thought out by the Quraysh. And they wanted to kind of limit and restrict the Muslims in almost every way possible. Uh, which we, you know, we compared it back to today that the, the the enemies of Islam and the enemies of the Muslims, you know, they spend their wealth, they spend their hard effort and they have massive institutions to strategize against uh, Muslims and, and come up with ideas and, you know, things like prevent and CVE and all these strategies that they have to harm the revival of Islam and the Muslims. So we, you know, we should always be very uh, aware of these plans and do our utmost to kind of expose these plans and these conspiracies against the Muslims so that we're not fooled and so that we can overcome our challenges similar to how 
what happened with the uh, the Muslims in, in the Quraysh and, and how the, the boycott came to an end. And, you know, this is very similar and this will always happen when it comes when it when there's haq on one side and batil on another there's always going to be this clash and and we should be aware of that so we spoke about quite a lot uh, about this and we we also spoke about the normalization agreement and the conspiracy that was happening against the the muslims of palestine and the muslims and the muslim ummah at large really but it really links in with what we want to speak about today and the main thing we want to speak about is the migrations to Abyssinia because there were two migrations the, the initial one which was far less people and then a much greater migration afterwards um, so we want to speak a bit about uh, the reasons behind this why why were the Muslims migrating to Abyssinia was it purely because it was to leave the persecution and the hostility that they were facing or was there any other deeper reasons behind why the Messenger decided to send uh, some Muslims to Abyssinia and then obviously, like we always do, we'll take some lessons from the migration itself, the hikmah of the Messenger in, in sending the Muslims there, and also the hikmah of uh, the Muslims in Abyssinia, especially Jafar ibn Abi Talib, who is the uh, the cousin of the Messenger So, as I, as I just said, that you know there were two migrations to Abyssinia. The first migration occurred again. It was a very hostile environment. The Muslims were being tortured and. Uh, this was in fact before the Islam of um, Omar and Hamza, so that the environment was actually far worse. And one thing just to note, um, on a side note, when we're doing this seerah and going through the seerah, I will do my best to kind of give a bit of a chronological order of events, but sometimes it'll be difficult to do that. Firstly, because some of the, some of the narrations and the evidence aren't clear on when the events happened. So there's not there's not always full clarity on on what which event happened first, and the other thing is when we're speaking about things, they they are going to span across different time periods and different ranges, so it's going to be difficult. To, I'd rather stick to stick to a topic and speak about that than you know limit myself to kind of chronological order. Um, otherwise, it would become very um, you know academic and and boring really so i want to speak a bit more about the lessons so there will be some kind of crossover and there is an occasion here we spoke about the islam of omar and hamza in the last episode but the first migration in fact happened before that so as you can tell from the environment it's probably worse because they didn't have the protection um, of uh, of hamza and omar so they were being persecuted as we spoke about they were being tested to the max by the Quraysh. And even though no one succumbed, no Muslim really succumbed to the pressure. Even those Muslims that spoke out against Islam and the and the and the, um, and the Messenger sallam, they didn't feel that in their heart. They didn't leave Islam for it. They just said it out of force. They were forced to say that. So the Messenger sallam, he advised uh, the Muslims to consider migrating to the land of Abyssinia, uh, where he said there's a just king, uh, An Najashi, who An Najashi is the title like the king, uh, similar to Caesar or Khosrow, you know, th this is just a title. Um, but the name of this An-Najashi, his name was Ashama. And he was known to be just, uh, and even though he was a non-Muslim, he was Christian, he did speak out for justice and, and he would be op you know, openly accept anyone that came to him for support and help. So the Messenger told some of these companions that perhaps you should go to the land of Abyssinia for it dwells, dwells a king in whose presence no one will be wronged. And it is a land of truth. Stay there until Allah provides uh, you with relief from the situation that you're presently in. So it's clear from this evidence and this uh, narration that one of the reasons of the migration was for the Muslims to flee persecution and the, and the torture that they were going through and to even protect their Islam and their deen so that they can continue to practice it. And this is something that is uh, we know from Islam. It's, it's something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran that, uh, you know, the, the, the earth is spacious. Allah owns the east and the west. Um, and we should, in order to protect our Islam, in order to obey Allah and practice our Islam and our deen, um, we should, in fact, migrate if we need to, if we're finding that we're suffering too much and we need to migrate to, in order to be able to worship Allah. As, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ibadilladheena amanu inna ardi wasi'atun fa'iyaya fa'abudun. All my slaves who believe, certainly spacious is my earth, so worship me alone. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling 
the us, the believers, that his earth is spacious. So we should worship Allah wherever we can. And if we're finding that with too many barriers to worshipping Allah, we can't practice our deen, we should seek to migrate uh, to Islam. And when I say to Islam, it's not necessarily the most holiest of lands or the most, um, you know, a Muslim land, for example. So uh, here, in this case, the Muslims were leaving the holiest land, Mecca, where they were, you know, that was where the Kaaba was, where the, the Haram was, the sacred land. Yet they were moved going to Abyssinia. So you, you could argue that they're leaving uh, Islam, but they weren't because uh, in, in Islam, it's not merely just the uh, the place or the geography or where we are uh, that makes it Islamic, but it's uh, in order where we can practice Islam. And obviously, after the uh, after the period where the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam established uh, the authority in Medina, then actually, the, wherever the Islamic authority is represents Islam, even if it may not be in the most holiest of lands in the earth, like Mecca, because Mecca wasn't. Uh, in that, obviously, it, it was what it was a while after that Mecca came into the fold of the Islamic authority when when after the conquest of Mecca. So yes, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala tells us, and Ibn Kathir narrates in his tafsir that you know Allah commands the one who is able to who is un, unable to practice his Deen and his Islam to migrate to a land where he's able to worship his Lord, because this is our purpose. This is our uh, you know purpose in life. To worship Allah. So if we're finding that we cannot do this, uh, we should seek to migrate so that we can. And it really makes you reflect on situations that we're finding ourselves in today, where there is a lot of persecution, uh, whether that be in, in you know countries like France, where they are going really hard on Muslims and anything. Even you know before it used to be just uh, the political side of Islam and anyone speaking about an alternative system they would clamp down on. But now it seems that anyone who even just to wear the hijab is bad to 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 have a mosque or to have a muslim organization is 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 not allowed in france because they want a secular state uh, which has no you know it gives no role to religion in life so you know we do need to think about whether you know we do need we have to migrate to worship allah and and the difficulty is that there isn't really an islamic land there are muslim lands and it may be easier to practice Islam, but there isn't necessarily an Islamic land. Um, and that's something that we will be accountable for. That What is our role in bringing about that Islamic authority, that shield and protection that will protect the Muslims and have that security that the Messenger himself showed us how to do? Uh, and we will speak about, obviously, in, in the seerah, how he brought about this Islamic authority, this protection, this shield. So... This is one of the reasons why uh, the migration to Abyssinia, Abyssinia took place uh, for, for you know, for a place where the Muslims could have security and practice their deen uh, with the protection of of you know Najashi. So, this first migration consisted of uh, around fourteen to fifteen companions only, and uh, they left in the secrecy of the night in boats in, in groups as well, so they didn't make it obvious, and you know. When we talk about migration, sometimes uh, we think about today, where going to another land is very easy. You know, we've got helicopters. We um, we ha it's basically a first-class service where we can get to one land to another very easily. But when you think about migration back in those times, and we should always put ourselves back in that situation, it's not a common thing. They wouldn't migrate to further lands because it's very difficult to do so. And it would be days on in the desert, and and you know, obviously trying to get over to the sea, onto these boats. This it wasn't a five star service. It was very difficult, um, and you know, they're leaving behind their blessed land, they're leaving behind their family, their belongings. It couldn't have been easy. Uh, it wasn't a holiday. It was it was you know a migration. They never knew whether they'd have the opportunity to even come back. So again, we should really put into perspective what this migration. It was it was a sacrifice. Um, that they were willing to make because the Messenger allowed them to do it and also um, to, to protect their Islam, to protect their deen and this is what the Islam meant to them they were not willing to give it up because it would have been easy for them to just give it up and think this is too difficult but they didn't want to because they had that strength and confidence in Islam and wherever they could, whatever they needed to do they would do in order to protect their deen 
So that was one reason. But um, there is another reason that the ulama have mentioned uh, with regards to this migration to Abyssinia. Um, and that is, they say, uh, one of the main reasons for the migration was to establish a stronghold uh, for Islam beyond Mecca. So obviously the authority of Islam came in Medina afterwards. But at the time, it was a difficult circumstance in Mecca. There wasn't really any fruits bearing from, from the Dawah. And, and, you know, there was a very, as we've spoken about, a very hostile, most people rejected Islam. There were only a handful of Muslims. So the ulama have said that the Messenger, in his hikmah, in his political astuteness, he decided that he wanted to have a stronghold in other than Mecca because of the situation he found himself. Um, and they give their reasons to support this because you could argue that it was just purely to do with persecution and, and fleeing persecution and that is definitely a reason so we can't say that wasn't it's very clear in the evidence that, that was a reason um, to, to, to kind of stop, get away from the persecution and, and, and that they were facing by the Quraysh but another reason was this and the, the evidence that these ulama provide is that those who migrated they weren't the weakest and of Muslims. They weren't the ones that were suffering the most. So for example, Bilal, Abdullah ibn Masood, Suhail ibn Rumi, Amar ibn Yasir, they didn't migrate to Abyssinia. In the in the first uh, first migration, they did they didn't migrate. So this tells us that if it had been for pure purely to you know, you know flee persecution and to remove themselves from that environment, then the Messenger وسلم, would have sent the most persecuted. Um, but then there's another argument, counter-argument, to say is that the reason these weak, the weakest of people couldn't leave was because they were stuck in the toils of slavery and servitude. So it's not easy just to get out of that. So that is a counter-argument. But the second reason that uh, these ulama give is that when the Muslims migrated to Medina, when uh, after the Pledge of Aqaba, which we will speak about, um, but when the Muslims actually found that stronghold in Medina, the Messenger وسلم, did not order the Muslims of Abyssinia to return to Medina until after five years uh, after the Battle of Kandak, which is known to be the battle which was the last attack from the Quraysh. So because of this, you know, this shows that only after this last and final attack from the Quraysh that now they've been defeated, only then the Messenger وسلم, asked the Muslims of Abyssinia to return to Medina because he wanted to have a precautionary base in Abyssinia in case things changed. And, you know, this may have been a hikmah. Whether, you know, it didn't happen, so Abyssinia was never the stronghold and it never became that, but it was this uh, plan B uh, that the Messenger وسلم, in his hikmah as a politician thought about having just in case as a, you know be, be being prepared um, and these scholars and ulama who have said this um, many of the even Sayyid Qutub he, he mentions this and many of the other um, the classical scholars they say this because they, they believe that it's too simplistic to say that it was purely about persecution and another point really to highlight is that political astuteness from the, the messenger وسلم, when he ordered the Muslims to migrate when he told these Muslims to, to migrate is that of the people who migrated, it wasn't just a single tribe. Really, the second migration had at least someone from every tribe. So what this means is that it creates a situation that the Quraysh cannot now attack a certain tribe for this action because every member of the tribes have, you know, at least one member has taken this action. So this, you know, they can't kind of blame one tribe for this. And it's a tribalistic society, so it's easy to kind of bring these arguments up. And it wasn't just a tribe of Muhammad Sallallahu or another tribe. It was, you know, a member of each tribe. And this is another point, is that it kind of brings that humiliation to the Quraysh. And that embarrassment that, you know, they are meant to be known for their hos uh, hospitality to the migrants. Not, you know, hospitality to foreigners, but they had created such a situation and their hatred for Islam and the Muslims was so great that they were even having to push a, push away their own family members 
uh, which is an embarrassment for that society especially which is all about tribe and in the arab peninsula you know that is a major thing to to be known to have driven away your own family was a massive embarrassment and it was a statement uh, from the muslims really that now they won't accept the bonds of tribalism and 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 family the only tribe that um, the only bond that made sense to them now was islam and that beca- that came was greater than blood that was greater than tribe and that was greater than family um and they were willing to have the protection of allah and and the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam and this whole tribalistic and nationalistic bond was was shattered which is a statement in itself so one of the so just moving on now one one of the things uh, i did want to highlight today uh, just to kind of bring it to some of our reality is that this situation or this event of the migrations to abyssinia uh, a, a modern day argument has come to say that our situation in the west uh, in you know living in these so-called quote unquote christian lands is like that of the migrants to the migration to abyssinia so what they mean what when people say this what they mean is that you know the the migrants the the, the migrants of abyssinia yeah the muslims of abyssinia who went, who went they were a minority and we are also a minority in this land in the west so we are similar in that way they will argue they went to a christian land we have also supposedly gone to a christian land we're in a christian land if you could argue that a former christian land so this is a very simplistic argument and they say that that's why we should um you know we 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 shouldn't really be looking at anything more than uh, in the sira about kind of establishing our own authority and state we're just like the muslims of abyssinia we've come here and we can do our best to get along and follow the rules and things like this and it's a very dangerous argument you know it's quite simplistic but it it leads to dangerous outcomes and i just want to break this down a little bit is it correct for us to say that our situation today in the west as migrants in the west and a minority in the west is like that of the migrants and the minority in abyssinia the muslims and i will give maybe three reasons why i feel that this is an incorrect comparison to make the first one is that the sahaba when they left for mecca to abyssinia they were facing oppression and persecution and they they had to protect their deen and this was one of the key reasons they left right and many of us here the reason we're here especially you know i can speak for myself i haven't left persecution i haven't left oppression we haven't come to protect our deen really we've come for economic benefit you know my parents they came because they wanted to gain greater economic benefit and coming to this land made sense and it wasn't really for fleeing or persecution or to protect their deen and arguably you could argue that it was at the expense of islam because in our lands we at least have that basis of islamic culture there okay maybe it's mixed in with some other culture but there is that basis of islamic family unit and all of this whereas today when we're living in the west what do our children face what do we face the education system that tr- uh, teaches us values that are at odds with islam that liberal values and secular values so you cannot say we are in the, the same in the sense that we've left persecution we've come to protect our deen because i would argue we haven't the only exception i could make is maybe those you know more recent examples of you know the syrians or libyans who have genuinely come from a worse situation for some security i could argue that but you know that that is for few and far between there's there's not that many of them in the west there's more of us kind of uh, south asian uh, muslims who have come here for more i'd say our forefathers and our parents came here for you know economic reasons the second argument is that you know the najashi he is not an is- enemy of islam clearly we will we will find out he wasn't an enemy of islam he was a just and fair leader as the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam told us can we compare him now to the leaders and the governments of the west who are open enemies of islam killing our people in the muslim lands you know sending armies there undertaking this ideological attack on islam our values our thought process our um, sharia all of that they're, they're attacking it 
And, you know, some recent examples in France, which has really been showing the world what secularism really means. Uh, you know, this sh this shows that we, you know, they do have this hatred for Islam and the Muslims. Um, and even just the, sim the symbol of the hijab is enough to be a threat to them and, uh, and, and cause hatred for the Muslims. So they are n definitely not just leaders who have our, uh, you know, who, who, who would want to protect us and, and, and save our Islam and allow us to practice our deen. They don't. They're not like Najashi in that sense. So that's another reason why we don't really compare. And the third reason, really, and this is more kind of a long-term reason, but those who went to Abyssinia, they knew their stay was temporary. They knew that one day they would want to go back to the stronghold of the Muslims when they had that. And they did. Obviously, they went back to Medina when when the Islamic authority was established. Many of us here in the West, we've accepted these as our lands, as a permanent land. It's our permanent residence. And what we've done is we've sought to mould our Islam and our deen to this unnatural environment where, you know, we all of Islam cannot be established in these lands. It's not a Muslim land. But we will do our best to kind of chop corners, compromise and... Uh, and we don't really have that ambition to live under the shield of Islam and the authority of Islam. And that's a, a shame because the Muslims of Abyssinia, they, they always wanted to go back. They always longed to live under uh, Islam and, and have that authority. And they longed to live with the Messenger, وسلم, and they did. So for these reasons, really, I think categorically we can say that we are not like the Muslims and the migrants of Abyssinia by living in the West. There is no comparison between our situation and their situation. There's clear differences. So I you know, I don't think this argument really sticks. It's a very simplistic argument. And as I said, it has really dangerous outcomes because what it does, it kind of neutralizes us. It makes us not want any change because, you know, we're like the Muslims of Abyssinia. That's it. And, you know, it becomes a very simplistic argument and that you know we're happy with our condition and our environment and that's not the case we shouldn't be happy with this environment we do want change and we do want to obey Allah and his messenger وسلم, and, and follow that mission that the messenger has shown us so moving back to kind of the seerah the muslims uh, in fact actually returned to mecca the, the initial muslims the 14 or so muslims who migrated to abyssinia they were there for a few months but they returned to Mecca after after a few months because of some news they heard. It was narrated that one day the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was sitting next to the Kaaba and he he um you know he was given revelation and it was the Surah An Najm, part of Surah An Najm. And he was sitting in front of both the Muslims and the not non Muslims of Quraysh. And essentially this surah, if if you know it, uh, it's one of those surahs that Yes. Obviously the whole Qur'an has eloquence But this surah kind of builds up the eloquence It kind of There's that build up in the ayat That uh, when you're listening to it uh, You're mesmerised And obviously they're Arabs So they understood every single word And the meaning of this So it has a greater impact And when the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam He got to the final verse uh, So prostrate to Allah and worship him not only did the Muslims fall into sujood, so this was, imagine the environment, there's all these Muslims and non-Muslims uh, listening to this revelation. The Muslims fell into sujood. But also, it is reported that the non-Muslims of Quraysh, they also went into sujood. And there is a false narration that uh, many of the Orientalists speak about, uh, who say, obviously this is definitely false, and we know it, and I don't want to go into too much detail about it, but... Um, if you did want any more detail, maybe research uh, the story of Gharanik, which basically, the, in a, in, just in short, say, they say that the Messenger he recited ayat, which uh, essentially before this prostration ayat, he recited ayat which uh, mentioned the gods of Quraysh, which in Surah Najib it does mention this, but then he said, apparently, which is obviously incorrect, that these Allah and Uzzan, Al-Manat, they are intercessors between the people and Allah, which obviously is shirk. We don't accept this. This was never said. But there is this narration that apparently he said this. And because of that, 
the Quraysh heard this and they fell into sujood as well because they felt that now we are willing to accept Islam because it falls in line with our creed and our belief system of obviously the, the idolatry. However, this uh, you know this is a weak narration and it's mainly pushed by the Orientalists. And there is another narration which says that these ayat that were said, that were incorrect, was not said by the Messenger was but was said by Shaitan himself. And the Quraysh and the non-Muslims, they heard these ayat whilst the Muslims did not. So that's why they thought that you know what the Messenger said was in line with their belief. However, again, I don't want to go into the detail of this. It doesn't really add to the seerah. He didn't say it, obviously, and we don't really know uh, the, the, what he said. We just know that he didn't say that because it's shirk and the, it's weak evidence. Um, however, what we do know is that this environment was created where the you know the Muslims and the non-Muslims were um, essentially so kind of mesmerized by what the Messenger said, and this story, like Chinese whispers, came went back to the Quraysh. Not the Quraysh, sorry. This story went back to the Muslims of Abyssinia, and obviously, with Chinese whispers, what happens? It gets exaggerated, and uh, things get added, and the the story became that the Quraysh had now all became Muslim, and all of Mecca is Muslim. And it's you know there's no more persecution or torture and you know all the Muslims can come back now. Um, so you know that's that was one of the reasons said that why the, the Muslims returned from Abyssinia. Another reason people give is that obviously as I said, um, the first migration took place before the Islam of Omar and Hamza. So after that migration, Omar and Hamza had become Muslim in that short period, and obviously the situation eased a little bit. So they, when they heard this, they thought, okay, th that must mean that the situation is, is fine, and we can return back, and we can live under that pr protection of uh, these new Muslims now. However, when they arrived back, um, they saw that the situation had not really improved, um, and it had gone gotten worse. And obviously, the boycott happened as well. So uh, they were given permission permission to make a second migration to Abyssinia. However, this time it wasn't just 14 Muslims, it was a much larger group, around 82 to 83 men and 18 women in the, in the, in the narrations and the evidence. So it was a much larger group who returned to Abyssinia. So the Muslims obviously they safely reached uh, Abyssinia uh, and they were living in that safety and protection of Al-Najashi. Um, but the news reached Quraysh. The Quraysh were now aware that a much larger Muslim group had migrated to Abyssinia. Um, and the Quraysh needed to obviously take action. So when they heard this, uh, they kind of got their heads together and they planned uh, to decide who could we send to uh, convince Al-Najashi to kind of return the Muslims. And they sent um, the the Quraysh, you know, they sent the, the most eloquent among them, uh, Amr ibn al-As, he was known for his politics, he was known for his speech, and Abdullah ibn Abi Rabia. And one thing to notice here is that even though the Muslims had left, even though they were driven out, really, they were driven out by the Quraysh, the Quraysh were still unwilling to accept it. Uh, and that really shows the hatred for Islam, that even if we leave the enemies, they will still chase us. They will still want uh, to kind of make a point and try to get us back and torture us and persecute us. They, they won't allow us just to leave. And this, you know, there's more modern cases of this where, you know, just going to another land uh, is is seen as uh, you know, if you, especially if it's not a holiday and you can't live in Syria or something like this, as, as we find with our uh, you know brother Tox, who's in Syria and he's been obviously arrested and I think he's still in imprisonment. Um, with with him in before obviously he lost his citizenship with the UK, um, and what he went there to do charity work and thing you know helping the Muslims nothing nothing evil and nothing bad but um this wasn't was unacceptable and this is just one case of what we know about there's many cases like this um where they they don't want to kind of let you have any sort of kind of uh you know place to worship allah and islam they will always have this hatred for the muslims and this was the case back then as well they sent these two uh, members from Quraysh to to kind of convince an najashi and what they did and it was very uh, astute from them and clever from them and it was very uh, comprehensive plan again. They were they were thinking about what they could do to make Najashi return. So so they planned ahead. They were proactive. They went to the ministers of Najashi and they gave them all of these gifts, lots of gifts and gold and whatever it may be. They gave all of these gifts, showered them with gifts, 
which in fact they were bribes you know they were, these were just bribes for the for the ministers to support them and they told them that you know these foolish youth from amongst us have taken residence in your land uh, you should tell a najashi to return them and they wanted basically the ministers to support them their decision um and to convince an najashi to return the, return the muslims without even having to speak to the muslims so the the ministers obviously they were bribed now so they agreed and and they also uh, you know the 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 Quraysh also sent gifts for Najashi, so they were trying to uh, bribe him as well. And the gift that he liked the most was leather, um, and they gave him loads of leather gifts because they knew um, Amr ibn Al As was also his friend. They knew him, they they had kind of previous dealings, so they knew each other. So you know this, these gifts were given to them, and then they came in front of an najashi and they said you know oh king some foolish fellows from our people have taken refuge in your country they've forsaken our deen and have not accepted yours but have bought into being an invented deen meaning islam which neither we nor you know anything about so they're really trying to show that you know they haven't accepted your deen of christianity nor have they kind of stayed upon their forefathers deen of, of the Quraysh, the, the the paganism and the idolatry and they, they went on to say that our nobles have sent us to you to return them. So surrender them to us, for their own people have the keenest insight and know most about their faults. And as per planned and what they planned ahead, the ministers and the patriarchs and everyone, they agreed and they said, look, Najashi, they're right. You know, they know them better than us. So we should return them because they can deal with them in the right way. However, Najashi, because he was just and he was a fair leader, he became very angry. He said, no, that, you know, they've come under my land. They've sought ref refuge from me. They've chosen me from all the leaders. The least I will ask, the least I will do is ask them of what these two have said about them. You know, I'll give them a fair trial. I'll listen to them. I'm not going to just accept your word. They, you know, they may have a, an argument that we should listen to. So he called for the Muslims to come. And obviously the Muslims were slightly nervous of, you know, why have we been called? Are, you know, are we going to be sent back? And, you know, they, all of this was going through their minds and they, they, they came together and they discussed, you know, what should we say? And they all agreed that we will say exactly what the Messenger has taught us to speak the truth regardless of the consequences. And they, you know, this principle was embedded within them that they will continue to speak the truth regardless of whatever consequences they will would be if they would return if they were going to be persecuted whatever it may be they will speak the truth so they all gathered in front of a najas najashi and he said uh, to the muslims uh, what is the religion for which you have left your people you've neither accepted my religion religion nor do you accept the religion of your people so the muslims uh, they put forward their amir and their spokesperson who was uh, jafar ibn abi talib um, who was obviously the cousin of the Messenger and he responded, he said and I, I'm going to read this because it's something we can take lessons from there's lots of hikmah within this statement of his he said O king, we were ignorant people and we lived like wild animals the stronger mongers lived, uh, lived by preying upon the weak we obeyed no law and we acknowledged no authority save for that of brute force we worshipped idols made of stone or wood, and we knew nothing of human dignity. And then God, in his mercy, sent us to, to us his messenger, who was himself one of us, meaning he was part of our tribe, and our, um, the, the tribe of Quraysh. We knew about his truthfulness and his integrity. His character was exemplary, and he was the most well-born of the Arabs. He invited us towards the worship of one God, and he forbade us to worship idols. He exhorted us to tell the truth and to protect the weak, the poor, the humble, the widows and the orphans. He ordered us to show respect to women and never to slander them. We obeyed him and followed his teachings. Most of the people in our country are still polytheists and they resented our conversion to this new deen, which, we, which is called Islam. They began to persecute us and it was in order to escape from this persecution by them that we sought and found sanctuary in your kingdom. So, there was a bit more to this, but this was the crux of what uh, uh, what Jafar ibn Abi Talib said. So obviously, and we'll speak about a bit more of this, but then what what, what happened next is Al-Najashi asked uh, Jafar ibn Abi Talib that, could you recite anything that the Prophet had bought? And Jafar, in his hikmah, 
he recited the verses of Surah Maryam because obviously these verses would be about the story of Mary and the story of Isa salam and something that a Najashi could relate to and the, and the ministers and the Christians could relate to. And he recited verses from Surah Maryam and when he finished, subhanAllah, the, and Najashi and his ministers, they were in tears, you know, the tears and their beards had become wet. And he responded, he said, By Allah, this and what Musa salam came with come from the same lantern, meaning the same source. I will never surrender them. And the next day, instead of leaving Amr ibn al-As, uh, instead of kind of that af- after that happened, you would have thought that Amr ibn al-As and the Quraysh would leave. But instead, they decided to pull another trick. They wanted to try one more. So they came back to Najashi and they said, "Look, so why don't you ask the Muslims what they say about Isa salam and that he is no more than a prophet?" Because he knew that the Muslims don't think Isa to be the son of God or anything greater than a prophet. He was a prophet and a messenger and that's what we believe him to be. So Amr ibn al-As is being very sly to kind of cause this rift between Najashi and the Muslims. So when he, again Najashi called the Muslims and asked them directly, what do you say of Isa salam? So again Jafar ibn Abi Talib, he didn't compromise, he didn't um, lie, he spoke the truth. He said, we say about him what our Prophet came with, that he is the slave of Allah, his messenger and a spirit created by him and his word, meaning meaning he said, kun fayakun, be and it is, which he bestowed upon Mary the Virgin. So again, he spoke the truth. And An-Najashi then got a stick and said, what Isa said and what you say does not go beyond this stick. Go, for you are safe in my land. So he recognized that there may be a slight difference, but the difference was so minimal that he told the Muslims that they were safe and he told the Quraysh, the two Quraysh uh, emissaries or the envoys, to go. And he, he, he asked that all their gifts were returned and, you know, Amr ibn al-As and the other envoy, they were left embarrassed and they had to return without uh, being able to bring back the Muslims. So what can we learn from the actions of Jafar? Uh, Ibn Abi Talib and the Muslims themselves you know one of the major lessons really is that they didn't compromise and they agreed to say as the Messenger Sallallahu taught them they agreed to speak the truth and do as the Muslims and the Messenger Sallallahu would do so one of the things that uh, Amr ibn al-As tried to say is that the Muslims disrespect you they don't prostrate to you when you enter the room because when a Najashi would enter the room all the people would prostrate and even the Quraysh prostrated but the Muslims did not. They stood straight. They stood straight. They didn't prostrate. And when they were asked why they didn't, they explained that they only prostrate to Allah. And this is something very important, I think, in the current climate. Recently, there's been a lot of social media uh, comments and commentary, a uh, discussion really about you know Muslim speakers and influential speakers partaking in events led by non-Muslims. Um, and even you know going as far as taking part in certain rituals, uh, and and what I find even worse is that they the call, the call that they're saying, is shaped by the liberal framework. And you know this is a complete compromise, of Islam. And much can be learnt from the actions of Jafar and the Muslims, who, even in this situation where their life was at stake. Whilst everyone followed the status quo, whilst everyone followed the framework of what was there in terms of, you know, prostrating to a Najashi, following that framework, they didn't. They remained firm. They remained firm on the principles of Islam and they remained firm on not following anything that would compromise Islam. And But they continued to speak with Hikmah. They didn't kind of cause aggression. They still spoke with Hikmah and thought about their words, but it wasn't a compromise of Islam. And they really practice what the Prophet said when, when in a hadith where he said, Whoever seeks the pleasure of Allah, though it is displeasing to the people, then Allah becomes pleased with them. And who and and, and will also make the people pleased with him. And whosoever sought the pleasure of the people, though it was displeasing to Allah, then Allah becomes displeased with him and will make the people displeased with him. This is subhanAllah amazing hadith because it really shows that. Our focus should be on pleasing Allah. Our focus should be on uh, 
not compromising and always thinking about whether it is allowed in Islam, whether it's halal and haram. Our framework should be the Islamic framework, not a liberal framework, not a Qurayshi framework, not even an uh, Abyssinian framework. And none of that. It should be the Islamic framework. And always seek to please Allah, even if we may displease the people. It may be that the status quo is that everyone is doing this one thing. And, and the Islamic thing is something else. And by doing that Islamic thing, you're going to displease the people. It's a, you know, it's going to happen. It's an eventuality. But as long as our relationship with Allah is correct, then that's what all that matters. And in fact, what what the Messenger is saying is, is saying here is that Allah will make the situation so that the people will be pleased with you, because you focused on Allah and pleasing Allah and Islam. And this is what happened with the Abyssinians, or the Muslims of Abyssinia. Sorry, they stuck to the truth they stuck to their message of islam and you know they gained protection from an najashi and they were respected for that and you'll find that if we stick to stick to our principles and we stick to that which is right we will gain respect but the day we compromise we will lose you know we will displease allah which is the worst thing and that's probably enough but we'll also lose the respect of the people because we never stuck to our principles. And you will find that many of the other deans, Christianity, Judaism, all the other deans, they've compromised and they've lost respect. People don't give respect to these religions. But, you know, for the Muslims, we do have, much of us, many of us do have that respect of, you know, we stick to our principles. Even when things are happening in schools and SRE and stuff, you know, the, a lot of these things go against Christianity. But it was the Muslims that spoke out because you know we are not willing to compromise and it's something that we need to reflect upon and take you know from the seerah and the and the hikmah of jafar ibn abi talib uh, when we think about you know our daily lives the other thing to highlight is that you know jafar when in his speech he spoke about all the faults of pre-islamic ignorance and by doing this what he was doing indirectly was he's showing to najashi that the Quraysh themselves were a decadent people they buried their daughters alive they cheated the poor they, you know, preyed upon the weak. And then he contrasted this to the nobleness of the Messenger, وسلم, spoke about his character even before Islam. And that the Islamic call and Islam as a message itself is what transformed them and challenged the decadence of the Quraysh. So this won over the Najashi because that's what kind of Christianity also had this same process of, you know, it's, it, the, some of the messages the Najashi and the ministers could relate to. He then spoke about the characteristics of being a Muslim, you know, looking after the orphans, the poor, giving to the poor, giving charity, uh, being honest, all of this. And th again, you know, this is similar to the messages of Isa and Musa salam. He then praised an Najashi for his good character and he said that he, they had chosen an Najashi from all the leaders of the world. So this goes against that claim that the Muslims have no um, respect for an Najashi. They have respect for him, but they won't compromise their deen for him. They won't bow to him, but they have respect for him. They came and chose him. So, you know, you know, we also spoke about how he he picked the Surah Maryam. So that was hikmah as well, because this is the Surah that and Najashi and his ministers and the Christians could relate to most. So there's many lessons we can take from that. And I've just touched upon a few, but uh, there's so much we can take from, uh, you know, Jafar ibn Abi Talib, who himself said he was following the Messenger وسلم, and he was his cousin because he you know he had direct experience of what the Messenger وسلم, was calling to um, and he knew his personal characteristics and it was reported also that the Messenger وسلم, had said that Jafar ibn Abi Talib is the most like the Messenger وسلم, both in the way he looks and his character so this may have been another reason why they put him forward as the Amir and the spokesperson so to conclude, really, I've uh, spoken quite a bit about an, uh, this kind of um, event of the migration to Abyssinia. But to conclude, just to wrap it all together, one of the things it showed is that, you know, the Quraysh, they carry out this well-thought-out plan to win over the ministers and the and Najashi. And this really shows that, you know, they did bribery, underhand tactics. It shows that we shouldn't really... We shouldn't, um, what's the word, underestimate the enemies of Allah. They will go the lowest and they will go far and come be robust in their plans and come together and bring their heads together to think about the worst way that they can attack Islam. 
and this is what the Quraysh did then and, and what the enemies of Islam do today. They also sent Amr ibn al-As, who was very politically astute, very great in speech. He was a friend of a Najashi, and he was shrewd. He was a shrewd politician, is probably the better word. And again, it just shows that they they thought about this. It wasn't just a, any send anyone. They thought about who could we send, who would have the biggest impact. But the other thing we spoke about is the political astuteness of the Prophet He knew about the current affairs of the world. He knew about who, which leaders were just, which leaders were corrupt, which leaders would accept the Muslims. And, you know, that's why he chose Najashi, because he knew about them. And this is something that we should be aware of. We should know about the current affairs of the world, know as in future, you know, who will be those nations that will protect the Muslims and will be on the side of the Muslims and who, who will be the ardent enemies. Um, and, you know, this act in itself, as we spoke about, wasn't just about a uh, fleeing the persecution but it was a political act it showed that now the Quraysh you know who are meant to be hospitable they themselves have forced the people out what message does it send to the Arab Peninsula that this is the Quraysh really this is the true colours are being shown um, and, and as we spoke about you know this was also uh, potentially a plan for plan B you know if what are the, the prospects and we should always think about this what, what are the prospects do we have um, and not just stick to one thing because, in fact, there could be, uh, you know, it might not work. So we should always think about the best styles and the best kind of plan and preparation in what we do. Um, always, obviously, sticking back to the sunnah of the Messenger and not compromising that. Um, and we spoke about Najashi and, and the eloquent speech he showed to the Najashi and he convinced the Najashi and the fact that he really broke it down. He spoke the truth. He spoke about justice. He spoke about believing in Allah. He recited Surah Maryam and he spoke about all the decadence of the Quraysh, uh, which in itself is, a, is an amazing speech that showed the Najashi that they were upon the truth. And the final thing really is that this uh, this event and this um, migration really showed the justice of a true leader or, or a truthful leader. And Najashi really showed, even though he wasn't Muslim, that he was ready to stand up for justice. And it really kind of contrasts with the leaders we have today. The Muslim leaders who are supposed to be, you know, they're Muslim. They're supposed to have this natural tendency towards the Muslims. Many of them today, they don't have an inch or even an atom of justice for the Muslims. They only think about how they can please uh, the Americans or, or whoever kind of pays their, uh, you know, pays their pays their um, wage or, um, you know, gives them their, their, their thrones. So it really contrasts, it, uh, you know, contrasts with what we have today. And there are a few leaders here and there that are showing a bit more, but many are, are mainly agents and, and they're, they're always looking to uh, support the enemies of Islam. So inshallah, you know, I pray that you benefited from uh, this episode. There's a lot we covered, but um, if you benefited, please uh, like this uh, post and this video, uh, share with others and, and make sure you follow and subscribe uh, to the Voice of the Ummah page. Uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.